0: You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show.
1: This is The Matt Townsend Show.
0: If we're not wholeheartedly in our relationship, then we probably are always looking for exit strategies.
2: Your guide on the
0: side. I would suggest you forge more character. This is The Matt Townsend Show.
1: Dr. Matt Townsend.
0: Many times, your spouse, they may seem a little critical, but they also may just be trying to give you uh, uh, some some ideas, some creative criticism, maybe it's anything to get you to try something different, to do something different. And so today I wanted to take a few minutes to talk about how do you take criticism from your spouse? And uh, many would be like, well, I shouldn't have to. Well, you shouldn't have to, but, um, uh, it may not, it may be that they simply don't know how to frame it in a, in any other way other than it sounding critical, or it might be, honestly, that you are just kind of sensitive to feedback, especially accurate feedback. I know many times, uh, I, I just wish people would just not give me feedback. Except deep down, I also know you need the feedback, right? So, um, Remember, uh, I'm going to give you just some rules that I've learned as I uh, work with people, as I get feedback myself, as I'm in my own relationships. Uh, Generally, if you kind of um, recognize one simple rule about feedback or criticism is that all criticism is more of a reflection of the person giving the criticism than it is of you, right? So, um you know some people might nitpick certain things others might nitpick other things and if you notice the feedback you're getting many times it's very much customized to what the needs are the ideas are what what one person feels is appropriate or not appropriate so it it's not something you necessarily need to be offended by it's not something you necessarily need to take um, any serious offense by. So, I guess recognize where the criticism is coming from. Recognize that you know if they're if they're critiquing how much money you make, you know there's probably a history here of of why they're bringing up money, and it might be that they came from money. It might be that they money's really important to them. Um, another another thing I always believe is check your sources. Right. So. A lot of times people will criticize you maybe about your your home cleaning skills, how clean the house is, but that may also be the exact same person that never, ever, 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 ever cleans the house. And so it's easy for them to maybe criticize, but they don't help clean the house is um, notice the notice when the conversation and when we're getting the feedback. Uh, If the criticism is coming in in the most angry, volatile, negative, ugly part of the conversation, I wouldn't weigh it so heavily, if that makes sense. Sometimes uh, you don't trust – I had a person once say, you know, uh, you always trust a drunk person because drunk people always tell the truth. And I'm like, you know, kind of, I guess, but they also – Wet themselves and they also, you know, can't stand up straight. So I don't know how much I would weigh what they're saying when they're drunk. And it might be true to their heart because they're willing to say it when they're intoxicated, but it also doesn't mean it's any more accurate when they're drunk. It's also no more accurate when they're really angry. So if someone's really angry and then they get all critical, I don't know that I would weigh it as more truthful. What it might be telling you is, boy, when they are keeping some things back, or it also might be telling you that when they have no filters on, uh, they'll say anything. Um, Is your partner, sometimes um, you might notice that you're more critical of your kids when they're doing things that you wish you wouldn't do. Right, so when I see my kids biting or picking at their nails, I get mad because I'm like, "Don't do that," because I do that, and I want you to not be like me. Stop doing that. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Check your sources. Uh, there, there might be reasons why the criticism is coming out. Um, it also might be just their pet peeve, their obsession. They may have been raised that you make your bed and you make it a certain way and it's made the minute the person gets up it's made and it's just, you know, that is just your spouse's pet peeve. And if it's their pet peeve, you don't always need to take that as, you know, normal or the law. One thing you could do too when somebody's trying to to push a lot of feedback or criticism on you is start looking for the truth in what they're saying. And so if you can find some truth in what they're saying, then what you could do is just take the truth, no matter how small, work on that, and disregard the rest. You know, there is power in being able to show other people that you actually can see truth. So when somebody says, man, you spend a lot of time on your phone, don't immediately deny it. No, I don't. Find out where there's truth. You know what? I really do. I love listening to podcasts. I love whatever, whatever, whatever. Find the truth that, that that is there and and see if you can't work with the truth. In healthy relationships, there usually is more truth in criticism than actually criticism. It's just somebody that's, that's trying to help give you some information. They also are a lot of times with people that actually care about you and are trying to help you be better. Um, underneath the criticism is actually a deeper pain that they might be having. If my wife is upset with me always being on my phone, it might be really what she wants is more attention from me, more work, more help, more support around the house. The And and so if you think about it, if you wanted to give somebody effective, critical feedback, it might be smarter to share what you really want instead of just critiquing what you don't like. Sometimes it doesn't do any good to just tell everybody what you don't like to see. I don't like to see you on your phone. Or why do we always eat the same thing every day? Maybe it might be better to tell what you'd like to see more of. Is there any way I could help and find ways to, to find some new recipes? How could I help make a meal with a new recipe this week? That might actually be a better way to do it. So you could actually acknowledge what they're saying, admit what they're what they're what's truthful about what they're saying. Accept it. Actually appreciate what they're doing. I totally agree with you. I'm on my phone all the time. I admit that it's I a lot of times defer to my phone to when I'm bored or when I'm when I have downtime and and I'm sorry it makes you upset and I'll work on making it better. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. And then actually make a plan to to do something better. Don't turn though as we're doing and getting feedback and critique from others. Don't turn over your self esteem to the other person. They shouldn't have the on and off switch to you feeling like you're worth something and a lot of this I think comes from just our childhood if you know if we if we would be critiqued by a parent and it impacted us as a child and we felt you know put down and deeply unloved and uncared for. Sometimes just recognize if you're feeling those same feelings today, that doesn't mean you have to take the feedback today like a child – like you would have taken it as a child 25 years ago or 40 years ago. You can actually re-look at it today and put it through another filter. Maybe they don't know what they're saying. Maybe they don't understand how this is impacting you. But don't empower anyone to, to change your moods consistently. You, in the end, are a, you're an entity. You're an agent. You're a free agent, quite honestly. And um, being a free agent allows you to choose how you're going to feel about the feedback, what you're going to do about the feedback. I found personally when I feel most guilty or hurt by feedback, there is a lot of truth in it, and I'm already really upset with myself, which is why I don't want them highlighting my weakness I'm already mad and I'm already down that I don't do that. I'm already down that I'm not doing the better job here. I'm already so thanks for the feedback. Um but it, but me being down doesn't discount the truth of it either. There's actually I think we're supposed to feel guilt and guilt is what's designed to get us to make a change and do something different. Don't let the guilt turn into shame where all of a sudden we feel like we're not worth anything. That's just a trick your mind plays on you. To, uh, you know, to be able to be angry at someone else sometimes. Oh, that person. I'm so sick of people speaking truth about things I already knew that I'm not doing that I knew I should be doing, but I'm not. <laughs> when you think about it that way, it's kind of crazy, isn't it? It's just feedback, folks. And uh, I get it. I mean, I'm very sensitive to it as well. It's just, it doesn't elevate my life being hypersensitive to, to feedback. And I don't want to empower too many people to uh, you know, to have that kind of energy change in me. I don't want them to have those keys to just automatically make me feel incredibly happy or incredibly sad just by how they're responding. I do have a buffer inside of me that can reinterpret how things go. Anyway, interesting stuff, folks. It's a life of feedback. We're all going to get it one way or another. And interestingly, the more successful you get, the more powerful you get, the higher you get up on the ladder, the more people are sometimes trying to mix you up a bit, make it a little harder for you, and more people have an opinion about you. It's not always fun, is it?
3: You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show.
0: The importance of um, learning a second language. It is interesting. I, I have friends that both speak Spanish or uh, other languages, and they, they make it a habit in their family to, to use those languages more. And it, they they actually do it as a way to to bring themselves t- together because they both speak Spanish. So why not speak more Spanish and then keep your language alive? It's something that you can do together. It actually uh, seems to energize their relationships a little bit. And I realize that whatever it is, um, you can make anything a hobby or uh, you know a learning opportunity. My father-in-law learned Spanish just on the side. He was a doctor, cardiologist. And for fun, he wanted to learn Spanish. So he would have uh, anybody that spoke Spanish in his uh, when he was doing his procedures, he would make them speak Spanish to him. And every day on the drive in, he'd listen to Spanish um, recordings and try to learn how to do it. And now he's fluent in Spanish. Like, come on he made did it as a hobby there really are a lot of things that we could probably try to do with our significant other our loved ones where we we actually can find more ways to connect find more ways to be together on a hobby find more ways to be together whether it's language or whether it's just you know getting out and uh, enjoying tennis or riding bikes or whatever you like to do together But um, one of the things I I hear a lot from my clients are, you know, they fall out of love. It's just not easy to keep the fire alive and the flame burning. And um, I'm like, yeah, well, sure. Passion, you know, you want passion in your marriage, but passion takes energy and you've got to somehow engage energy in your marriage. If you want more passion and connection, you're going to have to exert more energy. Oh, yes. I don't
1: have time for that.
0: I kind of just want to take a pill that I just uh, gives us passion. But uh, many marriages are, are really starving because we don't exert the energy we need, just like we don't exert the energy that it takes to to make um, something like learning a language takes energy. I, I learned a language and I'm still not focusing on it or, or giving it any energy. And when you don't give something energy, it fades. You start to lose it. And so I would just challenge all of us, if you wanna make things important to you, you're going to have to give it some energy. We always talk about just giving it time, and time is great, but it also is going to take energy. You're going to have to decide how you know how bad you want something and is it worth the energy you have to, to take. I, in fact, uh, my kids were saying the other day, hey dad, let's buy a boat, we want a boat, let's get a boat. And in my head, the whole decision is about energy. (laughs) Because my kids have never, they don't know what it feels like to ski all day and then come off the boat uh, and be done and bring the boat in and then have to spend the next few hours cleaning the boat, you know, and drying the boat and washing the boat and taking care of the boat. They don't know what that's like. But in my head, I'm like, oh, yeah, it's really not even about skiing, you guys. But then others would say, yeah, but that's how you teach your kids to work, right? You teach them to work that. Yeah, but that's just more energy. So um, think about it. What takes your energy and what gives you energy back? And that's probably um, something that we all ought to be looking at. If you want more excitement in life, if you want more connection in marriage and relationships, if you want more – you know, learning and growing, you're going to have to figure out how to, ex- you know, energize uh, yourself enough to go do something about it. Also, maybe you're going to have to cut down on other things that you're doing. At some point, you're going to have to say, I'm not, I can't do that. I don't have the bandwidth to keep doing all of these other things. But um, it also, there is benefit in um, finding activities. Where you could like work together as a family and use and conserve all that energy to, for example, be with your family. We play tennis as a family and that makes it so every time we go do our hobby, we're doing it as a family. And that all of a sudden gives us not only time together but something that we can share together, something that we enjoy together and uh, something that brings us a lot of peace. So life is good, and whatever it is you choose to you know, you know, excel at or make a hobby or bring into your life, let's do it. That's great, and manage your energy as you do it and see if you can involve more people into the process. Then all of a sudden your hobbies become something that are additive to your family life instead of something that divides you away from your family. This is The Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, genius, persistence, and passion are important, but they mean little without emotional intelligence, without some ability to manage your your emotions and, and to understand the emotions of others. In fact, it can elevate you above circumstances that would stop a lesser leader. All of us will experience loss in some form or another, and without emotional intelligence loss could cause a, us to crumble under the circumstances joining us today damon brown is a renowned author and columnist he's here with us uh, this morning to talk about how emotional intelligence can aid us in handling loss in our lives damon brown welcome to the matt townsend show
4: hey, good morning matt how
0: are you excellent great to have you on the show i love uh, your writing in inkcom uh, wonderful stuff there. Um, Damon, emotional intelligence, we, we talk about it on the show almost every month, but uh, just for a little summary, explain, redefine emotional intelligence for
4: us. Sure, and so we know about IQ, and uh, as far as your intelligent quotient, that's something that we've known for, for several decades now, and it talks about uh, the ability for your brain to work in a certain way, for so you to understand concepts, for you to adapt. Emotional intelligence, or EQ, is actually taking that idea but applying it to how you deal with situations emotionally. And so, for instance... Yeah, teach teaches, yeah. Oh, oh, of course. And so, uh, for instance, if you, have a, uh, if you have a situation that you're in where you get into, like, a car accident, and the person that you ran into is yelling at you at the moment, then how you react to that will reflect your emotional intelligence. Yeah. Now your IQ is a little bit different because your IQ might be the wisdom to know what the next step would be logically, but logic isn't going to help you if emotionally you can't deal with the situation.
1: Yeah, if
0: you're having a breakdown, or if you
4: exactly exactly your brain's not going to help you, right?
0: <laughs> and, and if you because like, that's the thing with emotional intelligence is it's so subtle. It's it almost. Um, it swells up inside of us. It might, my intelligence doesn't necessarily swell up and make me want to haul off and hit somebody, but my ability to control right. my emotion, and, and I guess, too, um, understand what I'm feeling, but also look at and understand the emotions of others and know how to kind of manage those emotions. That's all emotional intelligence.
4: Huge, exactly. I think that's a huge part of it, which I neglected to mention, but you're right, where it's not just, how you feel and how you manage that but also the whole world around you and the the six or seven billion people around the world we're all going to react differently and so if you're interacting with someone who has a different type of emotional intelligence then you need to manage that um i'm actually a parent of two kids and so i deal with emotional intelligence every single day
0: (laughs) yeah (laughs) but your baby for example how old's your baby damon
4: Um, Actually, I have two. So I have a a three year old and then I have a four month old.
0: But isn't it interesting that um, how the four month old, again, so innocent, so perfect, nothing but just, (laughs) you know, just trying to eat and sleep and poop. But that little cry, have you ever noticed like a cry at three in the morning? When you hear that cry, your brain has a reaction. And, and you can almost sometimes feel, and by, I have six kids, Damon. Um, so by the time you've done wow. this a lot, you, your body, st- you, you start noticing that something as simple as just a cry or a noise or somebody saying, Dad, why are you doing that? Can create this reaction inside of you, inside of each of us. So that's why I think, I, I, I didn't tell you we wanted to talk about this, but um, experience because you're you're into everything, Damon. As you as I go to your website, damontalks.strikingly.com, dot strikingly dot com, you can see your your content, your books on passion and understanding, connection and communication. What do you think when we're talking about emotional intelligence about what you're seeing going on with Donald Trump?
4: I, I think there's a low level of emotional intelligence, and I do think he's a smart man. Yeah, um, I don't I don't think he would have gotten this far if he wasn't smart. I think he's smarter than we give him credit for. Right, and I'm not. I'm not as big a fan. I'm speaking just from a yeah. objective standpoint. You know, you don't you don't dumb your way to the present. No, it, it, it doesn't work like that.
0: But he and also people, he, he knows how to read people, right? So he's emotionally intelligent enough to know how to get followers. But he doesn't seem like yeah. he can control yeah. his own emotion, like when you make a funny comment about him.
4: Well, you know what's funny is that. That actually might be the part that makes him endearing to some of the population in, here in America, because he end up having someone who um, seems vulnerable and seems insecure. Yeah. And oh yeah. Maybe he may not be, but he happens to know what to say for the parts of the population that like him. Right. Again, there there seems to be a strategy at play, and I think it's really important to understand that. Um, one of my favorite books is The 48 Laws of Power by Robert Greene. Uh-huh. And if someone was kind of confused about what's happening with Trump right now, I would implore them to read that book and better understand how people use power. And it's similar to, um, I'm going to get slightly obscure, but I'm a big fan of the classic martial arts movies. And there's, uh, there's a trope called The Drunken Monk. <laughs> and what he does is, He's a fighter, but he actually seems like he's drunk all the time.
0: Oh, so he's always just hanging around yeah. out on the street, seemingly drunk, but he stops a fight. Exactly. Yeah,
4: and he ends up—he ends up being the guy that you—that's like you underestimate him. It's like, oh, well, he's, hes the drunk guy. Whatever. We're not yeah. gonna—we're not gonna worry about him. And then, of course, that by the end of the film, he's beating everybody up and he's saving <laughs> the town and all these crazy things. I think it's very similar. Where interesting, this is, this is part of Trump's persona. Yeah, like this. You know, I've been observing him for several years, not even several years, probably a couple of decades by right now. And this is his persona, the persona you see on The Apprentice. If you go back to um, The Art of the Deal, right. came out in the mid-'80s, which is controversial now because now the ghostwriter is disavowing the book. <laughs> and so I, I just read about that in the New Yorker, that's fascinating as a, as a writer. Um, but you, you see that it's always been the same trope. So the way he's going towards the presidency is the same way that he made a deal with Taj Mahal over at Atlantic City. The same way that he he presented himself with his his ghostwriter, Tony Schwartz, or actually his public ghostwriter, Tony Schwartz, back in 1987 or so in the art of the deal. So it's kind of the same pattern. Hmm. If you look at the history, it seems to work for him. So I don't know if he's going to get the presidency, but I definitely see wouldn't
0: be like, I don't think we should underestimate it. Yeah. Well, have you ever written, that is a great, you need to write that as an article. Have you ever written that in your article?
4: No, no. I I generally stay
0: away from politics. I (laughs) bet. But, but I mean, emotionally intelligent wise, that's such a great example. Every, nobody paid any attention to Donald because he was, he was just the drunk dude making a scene. And the next thing you know, he's, he's in the final two.
4: Yeah, and, and I think that that's something that, um, that many of us can relate to, not the drunken monk part, but <laughs> yeah. that many of us can relate to as far as some of the most interesting things we've done has been when no one was watching The Door. Mm-hmm. And so I know for myself, I've written 17 books, and a lot of the books that I wrote early on, they were totally under the radar. People weren't really talking about me. People weren't paying attention. People didn't know I wrote books. And so that really allowed me to develop a style. And by the time I got notoriety, I already had a half a dozen books out. Man. And that ended up being to my advantage because then my older books ended up selling. And I was actually developing my own voice within the way that I wanted to do it. Um, I don't know if that trumps past. No. But it is one of those things where if people knew that he'd get this far in the presidency, he wouldn't have made it this far in the presidency.
0: Exactly. Yeah, they're like, that guy's Sorry. not even drunk.
4: <laughs> He's
0: just that out of exactly. control. That's so true. Yeah, I knew you'd have good insight on this. Um, Kate, okay, we probably ought to get back to your the article about emotional intelligence because the the ability to recognize my emotion, share my emotion, manage my emotion, understand other people's emotions, you, you posit that that could be one of your greatest advantages to handling loss, to handling tough times in your life.
4: 100%. And it's really about reframing reframing your experience. And I'm a storyteller. You're likely a storyteller. Yeah. So we have, that, we have that advantage where if there's something really challenging happening in our lives, we can frame it however we like. And that's a very useful tool. For instance, again, if I end up being in a situation like a car accident or something to that effect, how I frame that will totally change how I react to that. So if it's something where, well, I need a new car anyway, then it's like, okay, well, that's the loss, but this is prompting me to change, and that's something I should have done before. If I look at it, if I look at it as I have very bad luck, then that might prompt other bad things to happen mm-hmm. because everything I look at will be within that framework.
1: It's so, so it's true. Simple
4: as that. And right, including creating some type of context for yourself, um, I'm a really big fan of context. So things aren't isolated incidents, inter- but they're actually fit within the context of something bigger. And my belief is that you create whatever that context is. I mean, it's one of the reasons why you have people who go through what could be objectively some of the most horrific or difficult things, and they seem fine. You know, they seem to, to be optimistic, or they seem to be ready to, to, move, to move on with their life, and you have other people who go through things that are really basic or really simple, and it seems to totally ravish them. And I think that's beyond something where it's just people, certain people have strong personalities and certain people have weak ones. I think it's more about people setting up a context for themselves as far as how they're going to interpret what happened. Yeah. And,
0: and you attribute that, I guess, to just kind of the in- inherent ability or, or gift of emotional intelligence.
4: Well, I think it's something that can be grown. Yeah, yeah. So more than a gift, yeah. Exactly right. I brought up kids, and and, and you said you have six. So very similar to that. Now, part of that is brain function for kids, but it's still a a decent analogy, I think, where, you know, for my three-year-old, I'm teaching him, and my wife is teaching him emotional intelligence. Yeah. Where if you you don't get this particular toy and someone else wants it, then you don't have to throw something, you don't have to you know, hit them, you don't have to yell. That's an excellent example of emotional intelligence. The same thing is happening. Someone's taking your toy. Right. How you react to it is very different. And that's something that can be learned. And that's why with parenting, that's why with um, I serve as a mentor to to different startups and to even to, to some kids. And that's why mentorship is so important. That's why having good guidance is so important. And I think Having a higher emotional intelligence is something you can terribly work on, um, and it's a constant thing. Uh, one of the columns that I have for them, for Inc. Magazine online, is talking about how we still make bad decisions even though we have high emotional intelligence. Yeah. And that's because, that's because it's always a sense of growth. You're not going to be 100% emotionally intelligent all the time. Like, that's just not human. Yeah, you're going to have a bad you know.
0: moment here and there. <laughs>
4: Exactly, of course, and I talked about that briefly, where I am um, a big fan of Brene Brown. Oh, I am, and too. she has these right. And so, I've been involved with the tech conference. I've seen her speak at TED a couple of times, and she's just absolutely amazing.
0: Okay, Damon, and hang one, on one we, sec, Damon. We got to take a break, but I want to come back, continue the discussion about Brene, also get into uh, more of uh, storytelling and how we control our story, and learn from you as a writer how we can write a better story. Out of our lives. We're talking with Damon Brown from DamonTalks.strikingly.com. Also, just go to DamonBrown.net and we're going to find out more about emotional intelligence and how it can help you lead your life. We'll be right back. Friends to the Matt Townsend Show. Today we're talking about emotional control, emotional management, also known as emotional intelligence. And uh, Damon Brown is joining us. Damon is a writer, a columnist. Uh, He's written many, many books. Um, And if you, he's a speaker from TED Talks. If you've gone to those, he's also co-founded the social meetup app, Cuddler, while being the primary caretaker to his uh, infant child and. Now he, uh, he now has two children and raising their, his beautiful children and trying to teach them how to, as they grow up, how to manage their emotion even more effectively. Damon Brown, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Great to have you. And uh, loved your article in Inc. called, uh, that was titled, This is the Way Emotionally Intelligent Leaders Handle Loss. Um, talk to us. One thing you've taught us already is emotional, uh, in, emotionally intelligent leaders manage they see they see these difficult times as a chance to kind of re script to reframe the story. And as a writer, I wanted to find out from you, because you talked about context as well. How do we how do we write the story? What what are the essential parts of the story that we need to make sure are included? And are there certain parts of the story we may not need to spend as much time on?
4: That is an excellent question. I, I think there's a few different elements. <laughs> and because of storytelling, and I love storytelling, I probably could talk on and on, so please stop me if I go. Through. No, you're good. <laughs> so, so one of the things that, uh, that's essential to story is the creation myth. So when did this person start? When mm. did it begin? And if we lean on them, um, I would implore anyone interested to check out uh, Joseph Campbell's The Hero of a Thousand Faces. And that is a classic book. It's about mythology, and it's about how there are essentially 12 or so steps to every major story that we know, whether it's uh, the birth of Jesus and his life down to Star Wars. Hmm. There's certain certain things that, certain patterns that that resonate with us. Like a formula that that resonate with us in, in storytelling. And it's particularly as a storyteller. It's essential reading, but even if you want to understand your life better. But there's the creation myth. So when did you actually start in this path? And for instance, for me, when I started writing, that was when I was a toddler. And so I learned my creation myth from my parents. Well, they said, oh, yeah, well, you started writing when you were like two and a half, three. And that's when you started your journey. I am like, wow, that's why I started my journey. Um, My journey as far as being an author didn't start until probably about a, a dozen dozen years ago when I decided, hey, maybe I'll write a book. And then suddenly it began, and there's a whole story behind that. And so essentially it's you owning your story and realizing that you're transforming. One of the things that we deal with in regards to emotional intelligence is us realizing what we have in control and what we do not have in control. And when it comes to storytelling, if you understand the beginning of your birth, then it's better to get control and know that this is part of a bigger story. It gives you context, and it makes you understand that you have a higher purpose, and that creation myth, when you started on this path, that was the beginning of your higher purpose. Uh, for instance, as far as becoming a parent, there's no way that I could be the same person I was before before I, I had kids. So that becomes part of the creation myth. Like I'm sorry, the thing of I'm being transformed by this, but I'm also understanding that I'm going to be a better person because of this. Yeah, and so it's essentially you making peace with the changes that happening in your life, whether you started them or if you did not, but at least creating some type of formula for that. I mean, you could even just make it.
0: Oh, sorry, that you could even just make it, Damon. That this accident or this situation or this job loss is the beginning of the new you or the new opportunity. I I guess you can always insert the new chapter and the new change.
4: hundred percent, exactly. And realizing that you're assuming even that you're going to be better based on this change, based on this new new you. Yeah. And the thing with the creation myth, you know, which goes back to, to Campbell, is that it isn't necessarily when you're born. But it's the concept that we're reborn over and over again. So we're always different people. Whether it's something subtle that happens during the course of the day and it changes our mindset to something again much bigger that changes who we are. And every time we have some type of change like that, whether it's self initiated or done from you know, from the outside universe, those are all opportunities for emotional intelligence. And perhaps that's really the best definition of emotional intelligence. Is you using your highest self to deal with the world at large,
0: mm. and maybe
4: that 's really what emotional intelligence is
0: no, oh, I love that, and two, I, I think it 's so powerful that um, how the role that we play as parents and even the role that we just play as bosses as coworkers as friends, as neighbors, as spouses, on helping to sculpt the story of those around us because being emotionally intelligent, I also have the ability to help you feel better about your own emotion and, ma- and your own life.
4: Exactly. I agree with that. And just to play a little bit of devil's advocate, I think part of emotional intelligence, too, is to, um, as they say in, in, in some of the, the corporate world. Of not to get sucked in by the giant hairball that you're circling, <laughs> and so, which is again as a parent and, and in other situations, is very challenging. Yeah. Um, like you mentioned, I, I co-founded an app So I was working intimately with two other people, you know, and that's and it, it was a very popular app. So that was a very that was a heavy pressure cooker situation. Being a parent, particularly now with two kids, because that's a new thing for me, you know, doing that very intense situation. You know, because now you have two kids and you have six, so you understand. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Now you have two kids who are, are equally, not equally, but are both dealing with their own emotional intelligence and knowing that they have a visceral feeling that something needs to be done right now. And so that's something that you're dealing with in the business world. That's something, depending on your circumstances, you're dealing with in your personal world. And it's not just a matter of, Helping to elevate other people's emotional intelligence, but also knowing when to back away. Mm-hmm. Because one of the things that I found is similar to IQ is that if you end up being in an environment where it's too intense, then it's easy to let your emotional intelligence drop. Yeah, and it's uh, it's it's like the classic uh, the classic uh, the, the classic uh, uh, term. It's like you know a wise man told me never to argue with fools because people from a distance can't see who's who is who. <laughs> and it's true. very, very similar to that. <laughs> That's <laughs> a great line. You get into an environment, and you can lose your emotional intelligence really quickly. Um, and as I mentioned in the in the ink article, you know the um, the colleague of mine, uh, Sri, Sri Niverson, he actually lost his position at a very major place over in New York, and it was really easy for him to lose his emotional intelligence over that. You know, he he's rightfully upset, but instead. He turned it around and used it to essentially court all these amazing job offers, and he actually he just he just got a new position over the past week, you know. And so since the article ran like two months ago, he already got a position that's arguably better than the position that he lost. Hmm. That's all from taking it as an emotional intelligent man, as opposed to to you know licking his wounds and and going off in the corner and and you know insulting or lashing out at, at his former employer.
0: Yeah. Man, I mean, that that's so cool because it, there's not going to be ever an end to the difficulties of life. So your ability to start spinning it in a healthier way, even anticipating it, um, knowing when to back off, knowing when to step in, you can't, you can't beat that skill set. Damon, as we wrap it up, what would you say – I always like to talk about the one thing um, and we have about a minute. So what would you say in that minute? What's the one thing? that makes the biggest difference to starting to take back and gain emotional intelligence?
4: I'd say taking a deep breath. So whatever's happening, take a deep breath and just sit with whatever's happening right now. Realize the story that you're constructing within your head. And again, back to the proverbial car accident, depending on the day it happens and your emotional state at that time, there could be 10 or 20 different stories you could tell yourself. So realize that whatever's happening in your life right now, it's based on the story that you're telling. And the, the, the quicker and the, the faster you understand that and accept that, then the, the easier it will be for you to gain control over your emotions and to understand that whatever you're seeing right now is just an incident. Mm. It's just an action. It's just something that happens, and whatever you get from it is based on the context that you're creating from the story that you tell. Yeah,
0: man, Damon Brown, great stuff, and keep up the great work, and good luck with your baby and your two babies, really. You're, you're, you've <laughs> got a lot to you've got a lot to give the world, and I'm honored that you were on the show.
4: Hey, right, thank you, man, I appreciate it.
0: You bet. DamonBrown.net uh, is the website and you can go find out all about his books, his work. There's so many great uh, ways to communicate and connect with him and learn from him. Damon Brown. We'll take a break, folks. Come back, wrap up this first hour of the Matt Townsend Show. We'll do a little Coach's Corner and uh, see if we can't, you know, even add on to what uh, Damon's already taught us. We'll be back, folks. Stick with us, helping you live healthier, happier lives right here on the Matt Townsend Show.
2: you boy you're too stupid to do what your coach tells you because life doesn't come with a handbook you need a
0: coach here's dr matt and his coaching corner play ball. welcome back friends to the matt townsend show hey you're seeing it play out in the news with uh, donald trump i think even hillary clinton this whole idea of emotional intelligence to be a leader you have to be able to manage your emotion You have to be able to recognize your own emotions uh, and manage them so that that your emotional outbursts, your emotional, your fears, your concerns aren't leading you. You also have to have the ability to recognize the emotions of others and know how to lower those emotions, not make them worse. And finally, I've got to find a way to enroll people into my emotion. It's called emotional intelligence. And as we see people that aren't trusting two of our political leaders – Um, Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump, it might simply be part of the reason we don't trust. We trust people that we believe have emotional intelligence, that they're not going to fly off the handle. I think of it as like a Coke bottle. If I shake a Coke bottle um, or, by by the way, Diet Pepsi, whatever have you, uh, if I shake it and create a – I'll create a reaction, but if I hand you the bottle and you know I just shook it you're not going to want to open it. You're not going to trust the explosion that's going to take place. So if you're out there and you feel like people don't listen to you, they don't necessarily trust you, they stay away from you at certain times, it might be that they're sensing that you aren't safe. You're not a safe person because you can't control how you respond in certain in certain cases. Perhaps Hillary Clinton um, went and hid emails because – She's it, she it created fear. It She's been in the spotlight forever. The media has been harsh on Hillary Clinton, and she found it easier to just, you know, try to control it all on her own. Nonetheless, people don't trust her because of that. Donald Trump ends up saying whatever he feels. And if you make up make fun of him or jab him, he reacts and crushes you, thinking that that's a manly move. The problem is, deep down, we don't trust people that aren't predictable and safe. And it's not something that you can just intellectualize. There's a gut reaction that people have to, to unsafe people. And it goes back to the days that we had to live, you know, as a tribe. And if somebody was a loose cannon in the tribe, they're, by the way, more likely to create problems, more likely to end up dying <laughs> And more likely to being kicked out of the tribe. So emotionally intelligent people, it's a huge advantage. It is something we should be teaching our kids. But don't just pass it down to the kids. First, look at yourself. Do people trust you and your ability to manage emotion? And it might be a good thing, too, that you look at your political candidates. Do they possess emotional intelligence? And And is that one of the reasons why you trust them or you don't trust them? It's not going away, folks. It's part of who we are, and it's actually a huge driver of success. We'll take a break. That's hour number one of the show. We'll be back next hour. More ideas, more information to help you uh, live longer and lead healthier, happier lives. We'll be right back.
3: You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show.
1: This is The Matt Townsend Show.
0: I would suggest you forge more character.
2: Your guide on the side.
0: Uh, It's it's these interruptions that are there to teach you the lessons we need to live. This is The Matt Townsend
1: Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. On BYU
0: Radio. BYU Radio. As we talk about uh, positive psychology and uh, that happiness movement that Daniel was talking about, it really is... Uh, to me, I, I love it as a, as a process, as an approach to life. It makes sense how we get there. We do need to pay attention and make sure that uh, we're not just telling people that they, they just got to hunker down and suck it up and, and be happy um, because, again, there are certain cultures and certain parts of our country, certain parts of our, um, of our world that they still don't have the same opportunities, right, as others And so um, to be positive when your sister was just abducted into a sex trade, uh, you know, underground, you know, problem, it's not enough to just say, just be happy. But that's not usually what the happiness uh, kind of movement is about. It's more about the fact that you can wait forever to be successful and it won't make you happy. A lot of us think success breeds happiness. grades makes you ha- make you happier. Uh, being a successful business operator makes you happy. and so we think perfection and getting a lot of things accomplished and done makes us happy and we've trained that into our children, we've trained it into our brains, our minds that accomplishment is happiness uh, and um, uh, you know control is happiness. And in reality, what you'll find out in all of the research on happiness is it's it's not quite that way. Usually what the key is, is happy people that find the method to find happiness in their existing life, those people tend to be successful. It's not that success breeds the happy. It's that happy people breed success. And that's some of the latest research on the subject. Um, so a couple of rules. I call them the ABCs of happiness, and they're very basic ideas, but the A of happiness is to appreciate today. We need to appreciate what is happening with us right now. Appreciate your life right now. Happier, happier people appreciate what's going on in their life. They actually appreciate what they're good at, and they're very, they're very tuned in to what they do well. They appreciate their strengths. They understand what their expertise is and what they know how to do. And they know their character strengths. They know their values and their beliefs. They also appreciate others, and they see what others are doing.
1: You're listening to the best of The Matt
0: Townsend Show. Happy people um, appreciate the fact that others are part of their life, part of their team, and they can see the good in what's happening and happier people appreciate the positive, not just that everything is positive, but they see the good that is happening daily. And um, the ability to see the good every day tends to change you, right? We can leverage good things. If, if we have more of a negative mindset, then all we tend to do is pick up all the negative. And um, a, a lot of pessimists would say, well, yeah, well, that's the best way to be, right? Then you're not going to be taken advantage of. Yeah, but not being taken advantage of does not make you happy. It also does not make you a great business person to play every interaction as, as a way that, to make sure you're not going to get harmed. At some point, you have to actually go reaching for the other things, the other benefits. So uh, the A's are to appreciate what is. Um, the B's of life uh, are really about believing in tomorrow. Happier people have a strong belief about what their future looks like. And they, they want to be a part of their future, and they want – and they know what their future should look like. They have a strong belief, a strong hope in what they can accomplish and do um, tomorrow. And uh, that means they have a strong connection to their purpose in life. They they have a mission. They understand what life is. They're trying to, to actually um, – to to be able to be in their lives in in a more active way and to fulfill their mission and their purpose and their passion, and they're connected to it. And really, that to me is one of the the greatest, I think, benefits of this whole uh, happiness movement is to know that you have a life that's pretty powerful, and if you can believe in it, uh, in tomorrow being a good thing, it's awesome. In fact, they actually define happiness as an experience of positive emotion, it's pleasure, combined with a deeper feeling of meaning and purpose. So ask yourself, do you have more meaning in your life? Do you have more purpose in your life? Because if so, you're probably going to be happier. And the C's of happiness are simply to connect deeply with others. Happy people connect more deeply with other people, which a couple things that means is they are intentionally not just zoning out. They don't just numb themselves with media, with technology, with Netflix. So they turn off their numbing. And uh, they don't just try to medicate themselves away. They don't drink their self into oblivion. They don't, uh, they, don't, they don't just phase out every night and turn off every night. And they also connect deeply with other people, which is hard for many because they, they don't want to be vulnerable. And so we, these are the things we've got to work on, appreciating what is, believing in what will be, and connecting along the way abcs of happiness you're listening to the best of the matt townsend show whether we're talking about global warming whether we're talking about you know international politics or famine or whatever is going on in the world as we just learned the more information that we can gather and garner the better right but instead uh a lot of us feel very comfortable with minimal information and then maximal uh uh beliefs and um and argumentation and all of these other things that go along with what complicate our lives, what complicate our relationships. Isn't it crazy that many times when we have when we are the least informed, we feel the very most confident? I uh, talked the other day about Fortnite, a video game. All the kids are out there playing, and um, a lot of parents don't like it. They just don't like it. And if you ask them why, then it's usually, well, my kids like it, and they're spending too much time on it. And then I just ask, have you ever played it with them? Have you ever gone to see what they're doing? When, the, Well, I mean, I've walked by, yeah, and it's just shooting people. They're just shooting people. Have you ever watched a game fully all the way through? Have you ever seen what is going on? No, no. So we have all of this fear, but we're not informed. And uh, it, this this also becomes a big part of our relationships, right, because – the reality is none of us in our in our interactions with others, none of us have all of the data. But boy, we sure act as if we do, don't we? we? We need to, in our conversations, assume we don't know. And even if you know, don't assume you understand everything about why that person would drive that way, why that person would say such a rude thing, why that person would, would be completely frustrated and, and angry about something. I um we had a a friend when we were raising our family and younger that wouldn't would not, absolutely would not let their child sleep over anywhere. Just wouldn't. Just stuff can happen that just horrible. Wouldn't let it happen. No. I mean and, and to a point where it was it was hard for the for the girl because this young girl was all of her friends were sleeping over. They all got to do it. So she'd get to go stay there until you know late and then she'd have to go home with her parents. And it makes sense, right? And uh, a lot of other parents were frustrated like just – like what? You don't trust us? You don't think we're – you think we're going to do something to your daughter? Is that what this is about? It's not. But come to find out, the girl had been – the mother had been abused as a child at a sleepover. And it's still part of her mindset. It hurts. It, it hurts bad. And the minute you understand that that's what the mother went through, you understand why she protects her daughter that way. It makes it understandable. These things don't always make things right or wrong, whatever that is, but it does make it understandable. So if you want more power with people – Try to understand them more. Assume that you don't have the full story. Assume that there's more going on upstream that is maybe coming into this uh, the pool of water that you're dealing with, the pool or the situation that you have to engage in. Don't assume you know. Don't assume you're informed. In fact, the more confusing the situation is, the more likely it is that you don't know what's going on. So watch it. Pay attention to it. Slow down the conversation uh, just like we were just learning uh from Anna Rosling Ronland, slow down the the interpretation we don't need to jump to conclusions we don't need to um, we don't need to make something a bigger problem than it is so just remember none of us have all the data, and if you don't have the data don't just quickly make it up. go try to figure it out, go try to gather more data. And then see if it doesn't improve your condition. Anyway, just a little idea. We all need more understanding regardless, right? Not easy, this life, but uh, totally worth it. And even worth it with people that drive us crazy. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. Could you ever be accused of being a clingy partner? Are you just too unwilling to let go of your loved one, your your significant other, your uh, you know your companion for life. You just too clingy. There really is uh, there there's, there is a, an issue where some of us in our relationships, when we have kind of an unsafe attachment, we might end up being what's called too anxiously attached. Right where we are constantly wondering where our partner is. Why are you here? Why aren't you here? Why aren't you, uh, you know, why haven't you called me? And, and we become a little too needy, a little too stuck uh, on, on each other. Now, right, it's good, to, it's good to like each other, right? It's good to want to be with each other. But clinginess is a whole different ballgame. In fact, here are some questions for you. Uh, I put together a little uh, quiz called the clinginess quiz. Here you go. Has your partner – this is how you can identify if you might be a little bit too clingy. Has your partner expressed concerns that you're clingy or needy? Have they ever told you, you just, you're just a little too needy? Do you get depressed or anxious when your partner isn't around during the day? Like do you, do you miss them so much that, you know, you get a little depressed? Do you place unrealistic expectations or demands on your partner because of your concerns – do you put like a demand and I've had clients that have demanded that their partner text them 3 times a day. Do you feel like you are less valuable and or less important because your partner is more independent than you are? You know, because the mere fact they want to go out and you know do something, you know, go golfing, does that terrify you? Well, what am I going to do all day? That takes 3 hours. Uh, are your thoughts or and fears keeping you from focusing on other things? Can you not move on and go do your other work that you need to do because you're too worried about what your partner might be doing? Do you have a childhood history of abandonment or trust issues? Do you, have you ever felt like your, your parents maybe weren't there for you and you know, you've known for a long time that you've, you just have a fear of people not being there for you? And do you suffer a strong, consistent sense of fear of losing people who are close to you? Do you worry that people might die, that people might not come back? Because if you do, you may have other issues going on, like an attachment disorder or abandonment issues. And that's where, you know what, if it's just fine, we'll work on it, right? But uh, one of the keys would be to get to the root and to go get some help. It's a perfect time to go get a counselor and let the counselor help you figure out what's going on, why are you so clingy, and what, what really is the deeper fear. Because you might think that holding on to the one you love is the key, But the tighter you grip, the more likely you are to lose the one that you love. And so we want uh, to be close to our partner. We want to show that we care. In fact, in the Bible, we even talk about you've got to cleave under your partner, right, your spouse and unto none other. And um, I I looked up the word uh, cling and the word cleave. Listen to this. Cling means to hold fast to or adhere closely to something as by gripping or sticking in contact with it. Uh, To cleave is to adhere closely or stick and cling, to remain faithful to it. And also um, the word cleave is also a verb, which means to part or split. Like a meat cleaver uh, is something that splits um, between division lines, natural-like division lines, right? So um, to uh, to cleave unto someone means you actually do stick, you remain faithful to that person, it also means that um, at some point you don't you, – you've got to be independent enough to have your own life. You've got to be somebody that is um, strong enough to, to be able to go your, on your own. And then when we come back together, life seems to be better. That's called interdependence, right? So just check it out. If you've got a little too much clinginess going on, it's time. Watch out. If you uh, stick too much, then others are going to have to pull away from you just to maintain their freedom. And you don't want that. It's actually the opposite of what you want. Anyway, just my little idea. My little coach's corner. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, becoming successful—it's a goal for many of us. And uh, in fact, if you think about it in America—that's like you gotta be—you gotta be a self-made man or a self-made woman. That thought has been taught to many a person and um, and a child even. So, how how do you truly become successful? Is it just through your hard work? Is it through your innovation, your ideas? Is it really just about you latching on to what you need to do, and then all of a sudden you make it happen, and the next thing you know, you are a self-made person? Well, according to our next guest, Tom English, um, he, he wrote an article tackling the myth of the self-made man, and is here today to help us understand that maybe this whole concept of being a self-made man, it's, it's maybe just more of a myth. Tom English, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for being with us today. What, what do you think? First of all, how did you get into this idea of even wanting to cover the concept of the self-made man?
5: That's a good question, actually. It's, it's something that's been on my mind for quite a while. Um, since I was at university, actually, I did my undergraduate degree in history and social policy, and the social policy side of things covered quite a lot of areas such as citizenship and welfare. welfare. And I remember one of my lecturers once saying, you know, I can't be doing with these people who say they're self-made, you know, that, that they've done it all on their own and that they've made some money all on their own and not give credit to anyone else, because, of course, everybody has to rely on, on somebody else. And I got thinking about that. And I thought, actually, that's a really good point. Um, who, who actually is ever truly a self-made man? And that certainly isn't to denigrate or dismiss individual efforts or contributions, yeah, becoming successful, um, but it's something that stuck with me. Has that, and it, it's kind of it's kind of played on my mind. I've, I've always wanted to to write a piece on it. Um, I did actually put something on Stephen R. Covey's Facebook page. Oh, did um, you? Yeah, when, when he was when he was alive a few years ago, before his his past actually put something on one of the comments about how I didn't believe there was anything as such as a self-made man, and that it didn't actually exist hmm. in its purest form. And he actually he reposted that as a discussion point, and it got some quite interesting discussion going, because I think, in a sense, it is a paradox, isn't it? It's, yeah. On the one hand, I'm saying, I don't, I don't actually think that the self-made man in, it, in its purest form exists, but on the other hand, you have to do something, right? You know, you, you don't just rely on other people to do it. You have to have some get-up-and-go, and that's why, in the article itself, I actually use the example of, of Rocky, the Rocky movies, because... I absolutely love those films. Mm. They're they're hugely inspiring. They're very well put together. They're great stories. They're very clear, very understandable to a large audience. And yet, you know, they, they seem to imbue the sense of individual achievement. But yet, when you actually watch them, you couldn't go away from any one of those films and believe that Rocky's actually done it all on his own. You know, you wouldn't you wouldn't dismiss the role of Adrian or um, right. of Mickey or any of the other characters in in the in the film. So I thought it was quite an interesting paradox to address because I think sometimes when we do get successful, we can get wrapped up in ourselves and think, "Well, look at me, I'm I'm the man. I've made it."
0: Yeah, and we, I mean, it's it's almost like like you said, paradoxical because th- they are showing their success, and in the movies, for example, they show all of the people around that were part of the game. But it's almost like we like to elevate people and make it about one person instead of making it about the unit that got them there.
5: Yes, I would agree with that. And just on this topic, I was reading an article by a business academic called Henry Mintzberg. And this article was actually, I think it was about 10 years old. He wrote it in the Financial Times. And um, he's basically arguing in the article that what we need is we need more community ship. And less leadership because the issue with leadership I'm, I mean I'm fascinated by leadership I find it extremely interesting how leaders can influence the success or failure of an organization but actually what leadership can do and what focusing on leadership too much can do can actually reduce the success or failure of an organization to one person so say one organization is really really successful um, I think one of the quotes in his article is, you know, show the media success, a successful organization and they'll show you a successful leader as if it's all hinging on that one person. Right. And anybody who's worked in any organization, be it, you know, a success or otherwise, will tell you that there are certainly an awful lot more components to it than just one man or woman at the top.
0: So true. Uh, that's an interesting concept. Uh, communityship. Because in, in yeah. the end, what some of the best leaders I've ever had were the ones that could get a sense of community going and a sense of almost self-direction in the community. So, it, I mean, it, it's – but we again, like you're saying, we focus on the one instead of the whole. Um, in in your um, article, in your work, you talk about the idea of leadership Alzheimer's. What, what yeah. do you mean by that? Explain that. That was interesting.
5: Well, I'm actually, I'm actually quoting from the Pope there. That's, not my, that's certainly not my concept, but I thought it was an excellent concept to really address this idea of, of people forgetting where they've come from. Um, you know, once people get to a certain level of, of success or elevation, you know, it's the idea that people forget where they've, they've come from and more particularly that they've forgotten who has helped them to get there in the first place. And I think an excellent example of, of a global CEO who hasn't done that, he hasn't fallen foul of the leadership Alzheimer's, is actually SAP CEO Bill McDermott. And his, his biography, Winner's Dream, is actually a great example of, of a leader who's, you know, he, he started out as a sales exec for, I think it was Xerox or somebody like that, and he's, you know, risen through the ranks to become the chief executive of the largest, I think they're the largest software company in the world. And he talks in that book about looking after your ecosystem. And what he means by that is, particularly in business, and sales can be related to business as a whole, um, what, what he means by ecosystem is thinking about what needs to happen to make things work, um, where where the dependencies are. In his case, when he was selling photocopies, he talked about how, he needed to form relationships with, with doormen in hotels to get into hotel lobbies hmm. and to set up his ex- exhibitions there. Um, for me, I work in sales in my day job. I think about my own ecosystem. I think about the end users. So for me, I actually sell to primarily university libraries, but I think a lot about our end users, the students. And um, They're a very big part of, of the ecosystem within which I work. So I think that the, the leadership Alzheimer's is very much about forgetting – Forgetting that you know forgetting those who've been involved in in helping it to be successful, those with whom you've had to collaborate and add value to to get to a position of of elevated status
0: yeah it it's um it's it's an interesting thing because you when you get into the sales world you you always hear you know the bosses the managers saying. You know, it's about your network. Get get as many people. Make those calls. Build those relationships. And yet, when you start killing it and making it big, it, you don't necessarily think about the people. Is that just our pride that kicks in, or or what is it? Is it is it us just trying to manifest the myth of the self
5: made man? I think I think it's natural. I think I think I think hubris. I think pride and hubris are, are very very natural when when we are successful because we do we do have it in us to kind of look around and think, you know what, I've absolutely nailed that. You know, that sale was awesome. Yeah. Or that performance. the performance at financial year was, was absolutely fantastic. We can kind of look at it and think, you know, I've I've nailed that I'm the man kind of thing. But then and, and I think that's natural within everybody, but I think what what separates us from from other animals is is the fact that we're able to check ourselves and we're actually able to think to ourselves, you know what? Yes I've had success, but Look at all these people who've been involved in that success. Um, I've got a colleague at work who, who works in sales support, and she's absolutely brilliant. And I'll tell anybody, anyone who talks to me about, about my success in sales, I'll, I'll mention her. Nicola. Hmm. I'll say she's the superstar. You know, She's the one who, who does so much that allows us to get things done and make things happen. And I think if you can, if you can put a name on it of somebody else who's helped you to be successful in any way, then it helps to keep that hubris in check because it's just a way of giving yourself a bit of a reality check and thinking, well, actually, yes, there has been a success, but it certainly didn't come all from my own doing. There were other people on the path and along the way who helped out.
0: Oh, that's so It's so true. And yeah, just, just always having to accept uh, because people will give you praise and, and um, you'll get all this attention because you made the big sell or whatever but to be able to list everybody's name that was part of it every single time, you also mm-hmm. probably ensure your success tomorrow as well.
5: Absolutely. Absolutely. I think it's a pretty, it's a pretty short term game to play to go around bragging about your, your successes and not giving credit where credit's due. Yeah. It's, it, it's it's the quickest way to undermine trust as well. It's the quickest way to, to get people defensive and then start to try and claim their turf in the, the success as well. And, it, it's it's kind of a destructive um, way of going about things. I think
0: is um, di- as we as we kind of talk about this because th- this this I don't know if you ever heard about it in the United States. There was a lot of issue about uh, President Obama making a comment t- about business people that business people didn't make their money. They, they didn't make mm. their businesses on their own, um, and mm. it it turned into like a big push because a business owner is like, "Are you kidding me?" But then Donald, I mean, mm-hmm. but he was talking about, but President Obama was talking about roads and about uh, taxes yeah. that have paid for roads and have created an infrastructure that made it. so if you're blessed enough to live in the United States, you already have a hand, you know, a, a, a leg up in in the rest of the world. is I mean, to what degree do we continue to give credit? Where does this credit ever end? for how we became successful. Because it goes everywhere and for years and generations, really.
5: Sure, sure. It, it absolutely does. And I think I think, being mindful of, of these factors like roads and the Internet and things like that that are actually critical to the success and the operation of many businesses, it, I think that's really, really important. Um, there's a phrase that my mom used to use when I was growing up, and it referred to... Uh, you know, assistance that you've got from others who've gone before. And the phrase that's used was drinking from wells that others have dug. And I really like that phrase because yeah. it, it, it kind of talks about infrastructure. It kind of talks about the building blocks that need to be in place for you to, to get some goodness or some value. So water, of course, is essential to life. And this idea of, you know, somebody else going before you and being a trailblazer in doing something that allows you to then subsequently go on to achieve something yourself. I think that's a great idea, and it's a great way of looking at things because we all we all benefit from infrastructure. That's that's just an absolute fact, you know. Irrespective of anyone's political views, you know, whatever they think about President Obama or his comments or the context they're made in, nobody can actually deny that you know, like a like a shipping like a trucking company, for example, they need roads to go on. If there are no roads, then they're going to have a a much harder time um, getting goods from from A to B, and um, and the, the same with any any business that relies on the internet as well as so many businesses now that have started because of the internet. Um, that you know, it's it's absolutely impossible to uh, to not recognise the the value and the necessity of of sound infrastructure.
1: Hmm.
0: Let's take a break. Again, we are speaking with Tom English who wrote an article tackling the myth of the self-made man. He's walking us through uh, just some of his learnings of life and and the importance of understanding th- that uh, we're all drinking from wells that others have dug, the wisdom of Tom's mom. That's pretty cool. Again, still impacting the rest of the world and Tom as well. We'll take a break, come back, continue this discussion, uh, hopefully find some more solutions for how we can make sure We are recognizing all those in our lives that have made a difference in who we are. We'll be back. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you see the good in the world. friends to the Matt Townsend show. You know, we're learning a lot, the importance of uh, focusing on community ship, not just leadership, and uh, the ability to not forget uh, how you got where you are. And there's something powerful, I think, about being able to stay connected to your ancestors, to your history, to everything that makes you be able to live the life you're living today and i think the minute we disconnect from that we're in trouble tom english is joining us tom is an award-winning innovative field sales executive he works with gale business unit in england he's also involved in, in is an, an involved community member he's a non-executive director of unity homes and enterprise in leeds england and wrote a wonderful article tackling the myth of the self-made man tom english welcome to the show my friend Thanks, Matt. Great to have you. Talk about the uh, the way that so – just some ways that you've seen to stay connected, to stay connected to the idea of being a community-made man, you know, raised by the village man instead of taking it all on and, and thinking you're the cat's meow.
5: <laughs> Good question. Well, some years ago now, I'll say some years ago because it's actually seven years ago, um, believe it or not, but it's seven years since I – became a non-executive director at Unity Housing Association and that was a purely serendipitous opportunity. I was basically coming to the end of my undergraduate degree and I needed to decide what I was going to do for a career and at that particular time I decided that I'd like to work in, in social housing and so I did I actually did a master's straight after my undergraduate degree in social housing and that led me to an opportunity to become a non-executive director a board member at Unity Housing. At the time, I thought, you know, <laughs> are you crazy? Why are you asking me to be a board member? You know, what, what do I know about life? I was I was a twenty-something-year-old guy. Everybody else on the board was about twenty years my senior, or or there or thereabouts. And um, and I really I really wasn't I really wasn't sure about it. And I thought, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna give this a go. And for about the first year or so that I was there, I, I didn't say a whole lot. I just sat there and listened and observed and really wanted to understand more about the organization. Hmm. And it's fair to say that over the past seven years that I've been there, I've, I've really grown to, to love the organization because of what it does. It was actually first established in the 80s as a response to um, institutional racism within social housing. It's actually what's called a Black and Minority Ethnic hmm. Housing Association. So it's got a particular focus on Black and Minority Ethnic groups within the community who were disproportionately disadvantaged through um, discriminatory practices that were within um, the social housing sector. So that was kind of where its, it's roots lay, and it's, it's remained a very, I would say, a very strongly community-focused organisation. Um, we're very proud of our independence we 're very proud of the fact that we haven 't been swallowed up into some large national organization that we are um, a community based organization that very much caters to the needs of our community so what we actually do then so the name unity homes enterprise the homes bit is fairly is fairly straightforward. We provide bricks and mortar homes of good quality affordable rents to those who need those particular homes at the time? Yeah, and we also on the enterprise side of things, we also support local businesses as well. So we have various business centres that we we support in the community. We also have um, a dedicated employment team as well, which which really helps our tenants to get their CVs sorted out. Their um, what do you call them in America? Resumes. That's it. Yeah. Um, so. We have a team to help with that. We have um, staff who help with financial advice with budgeting advice with helping tenants and members of the community to be self sufficient as well so that they can manage their income they can increase their skills and get jobs and you know th- there 's no question about it there is There is a business case in that somewhere you know it's it 's enlightened self interest because of course. Our, our lifeblood is, is rental income it 's revenue to the organization, so we need people to be paying the rent if they 've got jobs they 've got a better chance of paying the rent right they 're financially savvy they 've got a better chance of paying the rent so of course there 's inherent within that there is an element of self interest but it also does a lot of good you know? and i 'm very like i say i 'm very proud to have been associated with unity and It's actually coming to the end of my time now. I'm about to to retire. I retire in September. It's going to be my final AGM there. And I was actually reflecting on that with with the chair of the board. And she was saying to me, you know, so so what have you made of it over the past seven years? And it was quite an interesting thing for me to say, but the words that came out of my mouth unrehearsed were, this place is sacred. Hmm. And I really... I really meant that. That really came straight from the heart, from the soul. And What I meant by that and why I believe that unity in organizations like it is sacred is because it's focused on serving other people. It's a non-profit organization. It's not interested in making money. It's not interested in, in profit or anything like that. It's, it's motivations motivations of my fellow board members to help people to help the organization to be better to grow so that we can help more people and you don't see or i don't see a lot of that in the world at the moment if i'm if i'm personally frank you know this is just my anecdotal evidence i see a lot of people trying to monetize things all the time you know they're trying to look for an angle how can we make money out of this
1: mm-hmm.
5: you know how can we charge for this whereas at unity I, you know i sit at a board table with about gosh i think there's about 11 or 12 others um, maybe a few less than that, and I see passionate people. I see people having, you know, real serious discussions about strategy and how to help things in the community more. How we can be better. How we can improve. And you know, it's all for the purpose of of making the world a better place. But making the world a better place, not not overextending ourselves and trying to fix every problem that exists. Yeah, yeah. Working within very clearly defined
0: fear of influence. Tom, do you sense um, that, because as you were telling that story, you have this long history, you have, you're, you're one that institutionally in the organization has a lot of these connections over the years, you saw the beginning, the middle and to the present. Um, I wonder sometimes if we, we forget uh, like we might forget kind of what created your organization simply because when Tom English is done and retires from it and moves on, others may not – they may not have seen that history. They may not have remembered those names or those experiences and I wonder if sometimes we, we create the self-made myth simply because we are all, we're always with ourselves but we don't always see the history like you did.
5: Yeah, and, and that, is, that is a good point. I think, I think context is really, really important. And it's a, it's a conversation I was having with, with our chair along the lines of, you know, how do, we, how do we keep this place special? How do we keep the integrity of the organization once myself and others move on from it? And it's really, you know, recruiting the right people is really, really important. Recruiting the people who, who have that sense of social purpose and who are really connected with that, who really engage with that. Yeah. Because hi- history history is important. You know, we can't live our lives looking in the rearview mirror, but we have to understand the nature of things. We have to understand the context of things. And that can be extremely useful in determining where we want to go as well and, and our future roadmap. So I think, it's, I think it's about perspective. I think it's always about making sure we have a sense of perspective and about being self-aware. And self-aware, I mean, if I talk about sales, self-awareness is one of those intangibles that is absolutely crucial. It's, it's actually really difficult to measure self-awareness. I don't know of any definitive metrics on how to de- define or measure self-awareness. Right. But yet, it's absolutely crucial to building relationships, um, to things like sales, to things like leadership, to things like building trust. And, I think the more that we strive for that, the more able we are then to deliver value and create value for not just for ourselves, but for others as well.
0: No, I think I think you're right on. And the more the more we talk about it, like like you're talking, like we're talking about it and allowing people to kind of become introspective. Into their own thinking, I, I think that helps as well. So, Tom English, you've, you've already you're already helping just by sharing your article and uh, your time with us. Thanks again so much for being with us.
5: My pleasure, Matt.
0: We've learned a lot. Keep up the great work, man. I'm telling you, that's power, isn't it? Uh, there's power in community and community ship. Talking about it, being aware of how you integrate with the community. So if you had to sit down and, and wonder what what's the key to your success, is it still just you? Oh, I just got I've got a work ethic you won't believe. Or who are the people associated? Do they need to hear a, do they need to have a letter? Maybe a call? Maybe start writing down the people that are the key to your success. And maybe it's time to go thank a few of them. Who knows, huh? There's power folks. We sink and we swim together. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you see the good in the world, remembering that you're part of the good. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, uh, to the Matt Townsend Show. We're talking about community, the importance of community, and, you know, maybe the idea that you need to think more about others than you do yourself, right? Well, if only this one guy in Florida had been thinking more about others, he probably wouldn't be in jail right now. It's time to talk about the bad boys. A 59-year-old Florida man was arrested after police said he punched a swan over the weekend. Really? That's the sound? Punching a swan.
2: Yes, it actually is. I did some very in-depth research, and that's what came out. I'm sure there were a lot of pans and pots in that punch. Well, you don't know what he hit the swan with. His fist. Really? Yeah. Are you sure?
0: It's right there. In, it's just right there in the article. Fist. Oh. Just a okay. Well, <sighs> carry on. According to Orlando police, two off-duty officers were walking through the park and stopped to watch a swan and her babies around 7 p.m. on Sunday. The man, uh, later identified as Sor Angel Velez, walked between the off-duty officers and the swan. You know. So... Probably closer to the swan than the cops were, apparently. And uh, apparently the swan reached out toward Velez as as if it were defending its babies. The officers said they saw Velez walk about 10 feet farther, then turn around and walk back toward the swan before punching the bird. Just punching the bird. Police said the man began to run, but he was caught by the two off-duty officers who then called police to report the incident. Busted. He's going to jail. What did the swan ever do to you?
2: Swans can give you this look that's really, really
0: maddening. Really? Mm-hmm. A swan, a beautiful, pristine, white bird.
2: I've had some experiences with swans.
0: You ever been chased by a swan?
2: Uh, by a Canadian goose, which they're pretty much the same thing
0: except they're different.
2: Well, a swan's just a glorified goose.
0: <laughs> the swan is the diva goose. Yeah. It's a goose with a diva complex. It thinks
2: it's all good. It thinks
0: it's mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: I I have no tolerance for that. Yeah,
0: you so then these the the swan gave you the the stink eye. Mhm. And then you did what? I just gave it right back. Okay. Yeah. Is that when it bit you? And you went to the hospital and had stitches?
2: No, but it did chase me for about five minutes. Really? Really? (laughs) It was
0: was scary. Do you have video of this? Um, Somebody does. Could you track that down for us? Um, Track that down. I have a feeling the listeners would love to see that. Track it down. I'm not
2: sure I want the listeners to see that. Well, we
0: won't put your name on it. We'll just (laughs) say some anonymous board op. That works for... Raven.com. Ravenicecream.com. Okay. Yeah, I'll do it. <laughs> Folks, don't punch swans. Don't, fu- don't punch any fowl. no beast. Just, you don't need to punch anything. All he had to do was say, whoa, that was scary. That little swan scared me to death. And then go home and tell your grandkids about it. Come on. We'll take a break, folks. That's hour number two of the show. Next hour, we'll be visiting our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation. Find out what's coming up on their show. Plus, Kimberly Giles will be joining us, one of our favorite coaches. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you see the good in the world.
6: Good morning. Welcome to Screen Cleaning. We've got a fantastic show for you here today. We've got a fantastic show every week. Isn't that right, Cole? Well, we try. That's the voice of Cole Wissinger, who is now officially a staff member at BYU Radio, and we couldn't uh, be happier than we currently are that he's here, wearing his X-Men hat.
7: In honor of Comic-Con.
6: Hey, we're going to be talking about Comic-Con. In fact, let's start off with that today. Of course, we're not in San Diego at the, what is officially Comic Con. There are other Comic Cons that have had to change their name, I believe, right? The one in Salt Lake City is now uh, Fan X.
7: Yeah, San Diego's Comic Con that's happening this weekend is the Comic Con in the United States.
6: Now, uh, we that's not going to stop me from saying Comic Con in Salt Lake. I don't know if I can remember Fan X, but we're going to try to get tickets to that at least. Um, But there's a lot of exciting news coming out of Comic-Con in San Diego. And, uh, Cole, I know that you're probably excited about some of the DC news that's coming out.
7: Correct. So yesterday was DC's big day where they kind of got to unveil a lot of their new stuff and some stuff that we already knew was going to happen. One of their announcements was the actual pricing and details of their exclusive Streaming service, the DC Netflix.
6: <sighs> Man, everybody's got a streaming service these days,
7: and they all cost money. Jeff, it's seven dollars and change a month, or seventy some dollars a year. The Boy Scout troop at my church has a streaming service. <laughs> so wait, how much is it again? About seven bucks a month. Or it's a little cheaper if you buy the whole year at once, like it normally is.
6: Now, are they rolling out with like a whole slew of programming? Because to get my seven bucks a month, you've got to have a lot of programming. Because what is Netflix? Ten bucks a month, but they've got an enormous amount of content
7: well and they've got some of the dc things as of now and disney as well and disney as of now right dc will slowly be moving some of their television products the flash legends of tomorrow supergirl uh those over to their streaming service but they are coming out with a couple new things okay one being a live action teen titans gritty hard Titans. Now, TV this show.
6: is the live action of the Teen Titans version that you actually like. You don't like the Go version, right? Well, the just
7: the Teen Titans in general. Yeah. Okay. But so yeah, we're on the eve of Teen Titans Go to the movies. Very kid friendly, very animated, very goofy movie that's coming out next week that's for kids. But this Titans TV show that's coming out on their streaming service is rated TVMA, Uh-oh. which is kind of the TV version of R. And in the short little trailer that they had, you had Robin swearing and it, this is this is not your teenagers, Teen Titans. Don't, that's you, think that's, don't
6: you think that's going to be confusing to a lot of parents that have a lot of kids trailer? as well? Yeah, sure. Hmm. Well, I don't know if I'm going to sign up for that service.
7: And they I mean, they're also going to brag about. How they will have their movies as well there, but sure. yeah, they got some pushback as to just how much, um, how much product is going to be available.
6: So we we kind of teased that Disney is going to have their own streaming service soon. Uh, they did show a trailer for. The new iteration of Clone Wars. They're resurrecting Clone Wars. Season
7: 7 is what they're at now. That's
6: exciting. You know, I was just at a family reunion and was told with a serious look on his face from my cousin-in-law, I guess, that you need to watch Clone Wars. And I, I thought maybe he was being a little silly at first. But no, he was dead serious.
7: No, it's a really good
6: show. Okay. I mean, I I know that's that's where we learn about what happened with Darth Maul and all that. But my big question is, so we already know that Disney is going to be uh, removing all of their films from Netflix to put on their streaming service. Makes sense, right? Does that mean if they acquire 20th Century Fox? I don't know if that deal has gone through yet.
7: Oh, but there was news about that this week because Comcast officially pulled their (gasps) – Offer, which means it's It's off the table. It's an inevitability that Disney will get. So, does that mean all of
6: the 20th Century Fox movies are going to be removed from Netflix to be put on the Disney streaming service as well?
7: If it does, I might also be leaving Netflix to go to the streaming service as well.
6: Okay, let me give a very appropriate Darth Vader.
7: No, because even Star Wars is Disney now. Yeah, it's wow. It's getting to be quite the, quite the stuff that Disney will sure. have available for them.
6: So, in the couple minutes that we have left, I mm-hmm. do want to mention that they they premiered another trailer for uh, Better Call Saul, which is going to be premiering next month. I'm very excited about that. I actually uh, am more of a fan of this show than. Its parent show, Breaking Bad. But Breaking Bad also had a strong presence at Comic-Con because they're celebrating the 10th anniversary of the beginning of Breaking Bad. Yeah. So they got the whole cast to come, uh, minus Jonathan Banks, uh, who plays Mike. Um, But they were asked in a huge hall, well, uh, whether or not Walt and Jesse would be appearing on season four of Better Call Saul. Because there have
7: been rumors that we're right. going to get some cameos. Who's it going to be? Mm-hmm.
6: And Vince Gilligan, the creator of Better Call Saul, said they will not be Aww. appearing in season four. Boom, boom, ba, boom, boom hmm. It's unfortunate, but, you know, I would, I would much rather see a solid story than trying to bring in nostalgia and trying to rope people in by just throwing in some cameos, it might not make a lot of sense. Now, there are some people that might make more sense, like the brother-in-law DEA agent Hank, uh, who is played by Dean Norris. That would make sense. As
7: Saul gets more involved in that drug circle, right? he's going to uh, be subject to some investigation, maybe.
6: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And I would not be surprised to see his probably deceased brother- Maybe in a flashback Uh or, like, maybe he's, like, kind of haunting uh, Jimmy. But anyway.
7: If there's any creator that has deserved our respect and deserved our trust for putting together a solid show with a story, it's the folks behind Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. Whatever they're doing, even if it's not going to be nostalgia-driven, it's going to be good.
6: So, Cole, um, before we move on to our main topic of the show today, which is going to be about – Music in movies. I'm not going to give away more than that. Uh, You kind of teased a little bit about uh, something that you want to talk about. You mentioned the name of a movie, Teen Titans Go to the Movies. Correct. And there are so many franchises and reboots, cinematic universes and sequels that are saturating Hollywood. But by the end of the year 2018, there's going to be 47 new entries into existing (laughs) franchises. Three of them come out Today, three sequels—it's crazy. While some are concerned with this, uh, what this means for new ideas in Hollywood, Cole Whissinger here is concerned with something different. What should we call all these movies?
7: Let's start with one of the longest-running franchises and one to have done it right from the start: Bond, James Bond, hit theaters for the first time in 1962 with Doctor No. And when he donned that classy suit and martini the very next year, he did it in a film called From Russia With Love. This is a franchise so confident in their hero that they don't put his name in a single one of those titles. 2015 did not see the release of James Bond Part 24. Maybe this time it'll be stirred, not shaken. No, it was simply Spectre, and people went to see it. And remember, back in the 60s, when these first ones were coming out, it was the time of... Tarzan's New York Adventure, or Tarzan and the She-Devil. Over in Japan, they were making Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla, or Son of Godzilla. Bond was cooking up 21st century names in a 20th century world. But the new millennium gave us a whole new flavor of bad sequel titling. Our friend Godzilla came out with Godzilla 2000 Millennium. And he wasn't the only one to cash in on this cool, modern-sounding year-in-the-title thing. Fantasia 2000, Dracula 2000, Blues Brothers 2000, released in 1998, of course. And even the reboot of the TV show Double Dare rebranded as Double Dare 2000 in this momentous year. But, honestly, I don't blame him. Reboots are really tough to name, and if you don't come up with something different, I'll probably just refer to you as... Star Trek 09, Planet of the Apes 01, or RoboCop 2014, or just the bad RoboCop. Yeah, some reboots are worse, and some are better, but they all need to come up with different names at least. If I'm going home to watch The Mummy tonight, you don't know if it's going to star Brendan Fraser, Tom Cruise, or Boris Karloff. Say what you want about the quality of the sequels, at least the Jurassic movies know what they're doing with their titles the first one was jurassic park and then the lost world jurassic park and then they go to the number thing with jurassic park 3 and then it's reboot time with jurassic world and then jurassic world fallen kingdom which means if the pattern holds we're gonna see jurassic world 3 in the near future speaking of these patterns that i love to find The fact that the bumbling Inspector Clouseau was in Return of the Pink Panther, Revenge of the Pink Panther, and Curse of the Pink Panther back in the 80s when a little bit later the Halloween franchise also named their second trilogy The Return of Michael Myers, The Revenge of Michael Myers, and The Curse of Michael Myers is fantastic. Now, there is one more series that I have to mention, and it is the one with no pattern, and it even breaks the rule of don't use numbers, and it all works. And it is The Fast and the Furious. They have changed up how they do titles for every single entry, going from using twos instead of TOO for Too Fast, Too Furious. Then they ditched numbers altogether in favor of a subtitle in The Fast and the Furious Tokyo Drift. Then it was simply Fast and Furious. And then all of a sudden you bring numbers back for Fast 5, Fast and Furious 6, Furious 7, and then most recently, The Fate of the Furious, which didn't officially have a number, but you're kidding yourself if you think this is the kind of franchise that didn't spell Fate F8 in some of that promo material, which went over, by the way, way better than when the Fantastic Four reboot tried spelling fantastic with the number four in the middle of it. And that was only the third movie? Ugh, that's a mess. But The Fast and the Furious do it just so well. That is your gold standard for sequel naming. So this weekend, instead of pulling out a DVD of Now You See Me Two and thinking to yourself, why didn't they call this Now You Don't? Go watch Mamma Mia, Here We Go Again. See, I don't know if it's going to be good or not, but I do know a great sequel title when I hear one.
6: Heading into this intro, because I think anytime this song is played, people just want to sit back and soak it all in, and just be in awe of whatever is in front of them. Usually, this song is played in movies when something very awe-inspiring is happening. Welcome back to Screen Cleaning. You know, speaking of songs, whenever a song reaches the top of the music charts, its success can usually be attributed to uh, the performer. Maybe the songwriter, a producer, maybe even an agent. And sometimes it's a a scandal or a death. But sometimes a hit song owes its success to a movie, which is why we're going to be talking about them here on Screen Cleaning here today. And we have brought in a very special guest, somebody who is an authority figure on a lot of these songs we're going to be talking about.
3: That just means I'm old. I've just... I remember no. them over the years.
6: No, it just means that you've got a show dedicated to rock yeah. and roll music called Through the Garage Door That's on BYU right. Radio.
3: Yes, yes, we do.
6: So we, of course, are lucky enough to be graced with the presence of Don Shaline on the program today. Welcome. Well, it's nice to be here. I, I
3: have listened to the show for a long time, and now I'm excited I actually get to be on the show. Now
6: you're really listening because we're talking about music, which yeah. you love. Yep. And I I want to set a couple of ground rules here. We have a couple of criteria for our discussion here today. We wanted to look at movies that were made either more famous by being in movies or... The songs that were... Right. The songs were made more famous because they were in a movie or... Maybe these are songs that used to be a hit, but maybe people forgot about them or forgot about the performer. But then when they were put in a movie again decades later, boom, they topped the charts once again. These are not songs, however. These are not songs that were written specifically for a movie. Those those songs are disqualified. We'll save that conversation for another day. Really? Okay. Mm-hmm. That should be fun. And we've each got three picks, and we're going to let Don start with his first pick, and you may have already heard it coming into the program. Yes,
3: we we opened with that. And and I so cannot speak German, so I won't say this the way it really (laughs) should be said. I had one of our staffers here say it, and it sounded (laughs) almost German. But also sprach Zarathustra. That's kind of my Italian read of it, which uh, apparently (laughs) translated as Thus Spake Zoroaster. You know, it's it's Mm. about the prophet uh, uh, Zoroaster in any way, written by Richard Strauss, um, and just a classical piece, but magnificent, so magnificent that uh, we've heard it in many movies. Elvis Presley would start his shows with it and, you know, his, (laughs) his live performances, but uh probably 2001 a space odyssey really brought that to the forefront that just that was 2001 space odyssey
1: right
6: i wonder if there's anybody that doesn't associate this song with 2001 a space odyssey yeah and whenever you see it in movies now they're not doing their own thing with it they are spoofing
1: Stanley Kubrick in <laughs> yeah, 2001,
3: 2001, Space Odyssey. Probably, yeah. It's it's some uh, underplayed moment in the movie, and it's like, okay, this is not all that great. But they put that music on, and it's like, wow. Now that's it's huge.
7: epic. Yeah. <laughs> this, this brings up a really interesting point about film scoring as well, because there was a score supposed to be written originally for 2001, huh. but when they heard this song and some of the other classical pieces that they used— It stuck to what was being edited and used in the film, even though for all I knew when I first saw 2001, I thought all this classical music was written for the movie. It was around first and then got repopularized by being in this great movie.
6: Right. And, you know, anytime you listen to the song, it really is awe-inspiring. And inspiring, I think, is a key word here. You just you feel like you can go out and accomplish something great, which is a good feeling to have. So as
3: that it plays, it's a very short piece actually, uh, and so it delivers a huge punch, and then it fades out, and on we go to the
7: you know to the next piece or whatever. But it's a great stage setting. And speaking of the classical music, I'm going to keep us classical for one more little piece, with a song that's recognized for use by a Disney movie. Oh, that's the song. I thought somebody's phone was buzzing. <laughs> this is the Sorcerer's Apprentice, most oh, famous for its use in Fantasia. Now, Fantasia was was an amazing
3: uh, movie because it was based around classical performances. Oh
7: yeah, it was the visual. It was the first music video. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mostly when original scores are written for movies, they're the last thing that's slapped on. But with Fantasia, it was entirely opposite. They had all this music that they wanted to feature, and so they put visuals and put movie to the music. Yeah.
6: You know what's interesting about these first two picks, and I wouldn't be surprised if this was a theme later on as we mentioned these other songs, but both of these... Uh, both of these movies have been spoofed on The Simpsons. Have they? This was an itchy and (laughs) scratchy episode, uh, very much like The Sorcerer's Apprentice. But, yeah, I don't know why. Fantasia never really spoke to me all that much.
3: I was going to ask you guys. Fantasia, to me, is kind of an acquired—you either love it or you hate it. Sure. There are a lot of people uh, that—my wife is one who is like— Really? You want to keep that little (laughs) DVD around here? Can't we give that away to the grandkids or something? And it
6: made a ton of money when it was released and then re-released back in 2000, I believe. Well, they
7: made an entirely new one. Yeah. They made a sequel, Fantasia 2000, with different music and different uh, visuals. Hmm. Fantasia, I love Fantasia. My mother is blind, like legally always has been blind, can't see blind. And so when she watches Fantasia, she is... Getting, uh, she can watch movies. She enjoys dialogue. She enjoys like witty banter and things like that. But Fantasia, I think more so than any other movie, really blends the two, audio and visual, so seamlessly that you have to have both to really enjoy it.
3: Yeah, I, I love it. It's just kind of a visual sound experience.
6: Yeah, but I think if I had to choose, you know, I might. This might be a good piece to to doze off to sleep to.
7: <laughs> well, then I'll I'll bring Knight, that bald mountain. There you next go. Time that'll wake him up.
6: We'll, we'll get you woke. But up. it gets back to Ave Maria after that, so he's back asleep. You know, Cole. Here's something else that'll wake you up. Uh, when I was in college and even in high school, I was very much a uh, romantic comedy type of guy. I was very much into the Very dramatic proposals, asking a girl to the dance, asking a girl to be my girlfriend. Like that was a thing. You had to ask them officially to be your girlfriend. And in college, I put this next song on a tape. And when I was embracing my then-girlfriend, I very slyly pressed play in my pocket. And this is what came out of the speaker. this, of course, is "Kiss Me" by you Six Sly Guy. Oh man! <laughs> she may have laughed, and that's—I think—that's the response I was, I was gonna going say, for. This little tinny yeah.
1: speaker—where's
6: <laughs> that coming from? Uh, so this is from Sixpence None the Richer, and this is a song that they did not write for the movie. She's all that, but it was very heavily featured in uh, the TV show Dawson's Creek. Which made it it more popular. Two
7: different episodes, right? (laughs)
6: Dawson's Creek, and then it appeared in She's All That, which was a very popular teen romantic comedy. I believe uh, it was 1999. So again, the prime time for me to really appreciate this type of song because I was, I was a sappy romantic into sappy (laughs) romantic comedies, and this definitely fit the bill. But it certainly is a very pretty song, and I think. For a lot of guys, it could be considered a guilty pleasure. They would never admit it, but it right. ties in. But that's you know, why it's, it's a guilty it, pleasure, that's right, Cole? I think we've identified another show that we're going to have to do later on guilty pleasures, <laughs> that or maybe we'll just call it. Uh, Jeff's talked about rom coms for a while. <laughs> we'll call yeah. it special confessions on screen cleaning. Uh-huh. <laughs> I don't know, Don. What was your opinion of that? Have you've probably heard the song? before, Oh yeah, right? yeah, yeah. I liked it when it came out. Uh, most
3: – this is where it's hard for me on this topic because my – I am much more into music than into movies. Sure. And so I'm coming to this from – well, yeah, I know where I was when I first heard that song. And much later I heard it in a movie and it's kind of like, oh, yeah, yeah, they use that. That's great. Yeah. But but for many people, I'm sure, their first impression of a song like that would be within the context of the TV show or the movie. And they'll always mm-hmm. remember that Uh, scene or whatever. And and I think it's really cool.
6: Well, and I think with a lot of these romantic comedies, too, people like to visualize themselves in these situations, in these romantic situations, because we all I think we're all a little romantic at heart, I would hope. Sure. I think the world could be a, a better place if we were. Anyway, I'm actually going to share the next pick, which is from another romantic comedy this one's a little bit more of an oddball of romantic comedy that's what i'm thinking great film great casting i was telling cole about the cast he had never he's never seen the film before but uh this is one that was released in 1988 and it was really big in other countries but when this film came out and it was featured in the film at the request of the film's star, uh, Mary Stuart Masterson, who plays June in Benny and June, it became a huge hit. Okay, I'm just going to go out and say that this is another guilty pleasure, I'm sure, for a lot of guys and for every woman. This is the epitome of of romantic love songs because, yes, they want that type of a man that would be willing to walk a thousand miles, that would be willing to do the dishes every once in a while, right? Well, now you draw the line of dishes.
3: Right? <laughs> now, you know, this song, though, I love the proclaimers, and I, I, I've always loved this song because they're so darn enthusiastic about it. Absolutely. I wouldn't walk, you know,
6: they're right <laughs> there, man. I, I just love how they, they attack that song. Right. And it's it's such a perfect fit for this movie, too. If you haven't seen it, it's this woman who kind of struggles with some mental health issues. And she has an older brother who's her caretaker, who is really at a point in his life where he's not sure if he can take care of her anymore. And she is at a point in her life where she wants to be a little more independent, go out on her own. And uh, it just so happens that this very oddball character who doesn't really have any mental health issues. He's just, just really odd. weird. Is that the Johnny Depp? That is the Johnny yeah. Depp character. <laughs> and he. there is a lot of homage that's paid to uh, Charlie Chaplin yeah. in this film that just really makes it charming. It's interesting. I told Cole an interesting tidbit about this movie. I'm sure you've seen it, right, Don? Yeah. It's been a long time. Uh, she, uh, she makes grilled cheese sandwiches with it's an iron. iron. I remember And that. she mashes her potatoes <laughs> with a tennis racket. <laughs> Well, for the sake of time, they had to delete a scene where she cooks a lobster in a dishwasher, which I would have loved to have seen. I don't know. PETA may not have appreciated that. But uh, what a great song. And I think you hit the nail on the, on the head, Don. And just when you are an artist of any kind, whether you're a comedian, whether you're a singer, a performer, people aren't going to appreciate it as much unless you completely commit to it and you sell it. And you that's what the it. proclaimers do in oh, this yeah. song.
3: Yeah, yeah. Now, can I talk about uh, a song that I first heard in a very appropriate place? I was in Italy in the early 70s and listening to—I actually got a cassette of the top 10 songs on the Italian pop charts. All of them but one Italian, totally Italian artists and Italian pop stuff— There was one song that the title was Italian. It was called Mamma Mia by a Mm. Swedish group, ABBA. I think I've heard of it. Have you heard that one?
1: One
6: and you'll notice, Don, that we very specifically chose the Meryl Streep version from the film yes. Mamma Mia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I loved it. It
3: was a peppy tune and Mamma Mia, you know, it was right there in the context. But it didn't get near the chart uh, status that it got
6: after it got into the movie, of course, the Mamma Mia movies with, uh, with Meryl Streep. And I don't know if you knew this, Don, but Mama Mia actually came out the same weekend as another huge film, and you would have thought that everybody's going to see this other film and Mia Mia's just going to bomb. Not the case. For the people that were not going to see The Dark Knight, which came out on the same weekend back in 2008, Mama Mia, what, that fit the ticket for all the other people, and it did very well,
7: yeah. So
3: Classic much so counter
7: programming, yeah. Right? That, that's
6: right. You, you want something a little lighter here. Well, here's Mamma Mia. So I mean, you mentioned Don that it wasn't as popular uh, the first time around. I mean, it, that could be because some of the other songs on that album were a little more popular than oh, Mamma yeah. Mia itself, right? Yeah, yeah. And and Abba, Abba was
3: uh, was huge. They, they were cranking out hits all over the place, and so you know it, it was still a hit but one of the many hits that ABBA was putting out. And so it it didn't really stand out as much on its own until it had a
6: title in a movie like that. Well, I, it hasn't convinced me to see the movie yet, and I really don't want to see the sequel. Um, that's not my cup of tea, but I do love ABBA, and I would also consider ABBA another guilty pleasure for you're me right, anyway. You're right. Guys admitting they like ABBA, that's, that takes a lot
3: of guts. You know?
6: It's almost <laughs> on par as admitting that you like Ace of Base, but I really truly feel that every guy likes Ace of Base as well. Because they're so enthusiastic,
7: well, like what you are you're saying. They are. All right, Cole, I think you've got our next pick. I do, and we've kind of reached the cover portion of our program today. We have Meryl Streep singing some ABBA for you, and then we have a re-release of a very old folksy song for my next pick. Hi- This again comes from a musical of sorts, but it's not your that's, conventionalist kind of. I was going to say
3: that's funny to call that a musical, isn't it? But, <laughs> but it, it's true. It's it loaded really with is. great music, and yeah.
7: This The goal of today's show is to show off a lot of songs that got more popular when they came out again. Sure. We don't have the Billboard from the 1920s when Man of Constant Sorrow or Down to the up, River Cole. to Pray or the other songs <laughs> that were featured in Oh Brother, Where Art Thou originally soggy came Soggy Bottom
3: up. Boys. I, and I just love the whole concept of that where they wander into the old radio station, you know, this blind DJ kind of guy right. that's... Uh, uh, putting them on and and just getting all excited about this, recording them as they go. But my favorite thing is the way they perform that when they get up there and they jump up, and, you know, and <laughs> just right up to the to the microphone to sing their echoing parts and things. They again enthusiasm is there.
6: And politics come into that scene too, where they kind of they kind of change the tide of oh, yeah. the uh, of the constituency. Of this one political candidate, I—I'm sure, Don, you've probably heard the song before. Oh, brother, no. where Arthur came out. You hadn't. Nope, nope. That was
3: interesting. That, that's true. That is my first time. A lot of these songs I had heard before, but that was the first time I'd heard. And that makes How a lot about about of that?
7: sense because you described. A- for people that this is their first exposure to these songs, is the movies? Is you can picture so well the scene that it's happening. Where singing, so yeah. when you describe them coming up to the can, I was thinking, I don't think Don's heard this before. That no, you're that right. Makes sense,
6: you're right. Can you imagine the joy? Like the the original songwriters, if they were looking down from heaven, seeing how popular this song and this entire album became, I can only imagine how much joy it would bring them. Because this is one of those songs that. A lot of people probably don't remember who the original songwriter was. It just kind of passes from one performer to the next.
7: It might just say traditional
6: down at the bottom. of right. yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. right. But this song was a huge hit and I believe the album, the soundtrack won a Grammy award. So you deserved it. I mean, this is I mean, this is the power of a good movie when you can shine a big light On music that has been completely forgotten or you're helping people discover for the first time, there's a lot of power in that. I have a very oddball pick also featured in In a romantic romantic comedy. comedy. One that is a romantic comedy that's not as obscure, but this version of this song might not be as familiar to you.
1: The best things in life are free. But you can give them to the birds and bees. I want money.
6: Now, Don, I know you've heard this song sung by the Beatles. By the Beatles, but they didn't write it either. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Have you ever heard this uh, cover yeah. of the song? You have. I have, yeah. It is so much fun and it is on one of two volumes of a soundtrack for The Wedding Singer. The Full Wedding of Singer.
7: Like 20 other songs oh, yeah. that I oh, like more. A, than loaded,
6: my... <laughs> I think I remember reading originally they had about 50 hit songs in this movie. It could be an exaggeration, but I believe it though. So many hits in this movie that they couldn't possibly put them all on one soundtrack. And this song was kind of a modest hit when it came out on the charts in the United States back in the 80s, but when The Wedding Singer was released in 1999, 1999, by the way, is Cole's favorite year for movies, and... When it came out in 1999, I believe the soundtrack peaked at number 22 on the Billboard charts, which is pretty respectable. Sure, sure. Um, I'm going to do you 21 better with my next pick, but keep Whoa. talking. Okay, <laughs> so I mean, this is a, this is a movie that you could you could just roll off all the great hits that are in this. You, you make my dreams by Holland Oates
7: was in it. You spin me round, white wedding, true Hungry by Spandu Ballet, the radio star. I can list them off because I want. I wanted to prove to you that with all these options and with everything that Adam Sandler is covering as well in this uh, program as well, there are so many other songs you could have picked, Jeffrey. Why money? Well, I chose
6: this one because, as I mentioned at the beginning of the program, the, the criteria for this discussion were it had to have either improved because of the release of the movie or... Or it was a song or a performer that maybe people forgot about and it reintroduced them to it. But I want to mention another song, which is not an 80s song by Cool and the Gang. One of my favorite songs, which is Ladies Night, my favorite version of Ladies Night, John Lovitz as the competing wedding singer when Adam Sandler decides he's retiring from singing at weddings. They're going to hire John Lovitz to sing at Drew Barrymore's wedding. And if you can imagine John Lovitz being really creepy and uh, croony-esque, I guess, then you've got John Lovitz in one of the best scenes of the movie. And that's my pick, Money. By the Flying Lizards. The Flying Lizards, I was going to say. That's who pulled that one off. So, Cole, you said you were going to do me one better with your pick. What have you
7: got in mind? Well, this is coming from the number one album whenever it was released as the soundtrack for the movie. Notice how he kind of rubbed in that number one, not Not number number 22. (laughs) Because your goal was to get it higher, and that I did. This is, I'm going to lead in with the scene from Guardians of the Galaxy, volume two.
1: I'm finishing this so we can listen to tunes while we work. How is
7: that a priority?
4: Blame Quill! He's the one who loves music so much. No, I actually agree with Drax on this. That's hardly important right now.
7: And now we get into Mr. Blue Sky by the Electric Light Orchestra. With chaos going on in the background, this song (laughs) represents so many important things that I want to talk about music and movies because... First of all, it does one of my favorite things, where the visuals don't match up with the sound that you're hearing for a purposeful reason. This is a happy, fun, doop a doop doo song, Um, while there is just carnage going on behind, but while also Baby Groot is dancing in Oblivious in the foreground as well. That's fantastic. And then also all of the songs in Guardians of the Galaxy Volumes 1 and volume 2 represent diegetic music. And what this is, is that? I get I get to teach for a <laughs> second here is that different from dietetic mm-hmm. yes, a little bit when i m- when music is diegetic in a movie it means the characters in the movie can also hear it oh so we've had songs where they're just kind of playing I know with Benny and June five hundred miles is just kind of playing in the background right but the whole point of Rocket talking about getting the speakers hooked up so that they can listen to the music is that while we're listening to this music, the characters in the movie are also listening to the same music. It's a twist that you can put on incorporating sound and music into your movie. Mm. And it
3: is actually helping them with their task at hand. Yeah. Right? It's
7: kind of saying,
6: hey, okay, we're getting this job done because we got the tunes on. Mm -hmm. And uh, I want to share this opportunity or take this opportunity to share my favorite Pandora Station, if you want to hear hit after hit after hit and not have to fast forward through any of the songs, type in Electric Light Orchestra on Pandora. <laughs> really? You will not be disappointed.
3: Uh, they, they just make you smile. Whenever you hear the Electric Light Orchestra, you just kind of smile.
6: One of the few bands and albums that you can put on where, again, you're not going to fast forward through any of the songs. You yeah. just like all of them. Yeah. I you know it's it's probably not my favorite ELO song definitely up there. I also love Don't Bring Me Down, oh, yeah. but again I think you're right, Cole. A, a good song like this can just make you happy, and coupled with Baby Groot who makes everybody happy, such a great mm. character universally because he doesn't really say anything. No, no, it's it's all about his inflections and his actions. So, Don, uh, we now I get the last song, Would like I? to end with a song that really. Is the whole reason we're even having this is it, conversation? Is this where the show
3: came from? Absolutely.
6: <laughs> when you talk about songs that were made even more famous by appearing in a movie, yeah. this has got to be number one on everybody's list. Now, while not exactly. Any Everybody would associate this song with the movie Wayne's World. A lot of people would. We, a lot of people would. I, I loved it when it first came
3: out. I actually was out of the country, back to the Italy story. But I, I when I came back to the country, this was had already been on the charts, and I discovered it and went totally wacko. I just would love to play that over and over because it was so amazing but it still felt a little bit underground a little bit like ah uh, yes yeah, a little too weird for it to be a hit sure a little too long to be long, a hit long you can't dance to it all that kind of stuff but then Wayne's world came out and the guys you know just bobbing their heads and rocking <laughs> out to it and it was like the whole world said yeah we can do that same thing and it it
6: totally had a real a brand new life again i think you you brought up a good point that it was it was kind of hard to categorize, kinda weird and yeah. long. Yeah. It probably drove radio DJs up the walls. Totally. Like, how am I gonna play this six <laughs> minute song and yeah. not having people turn the channel? Right,
3: and it changes the speed and this Mamma yeah. Mia
6: and Figaro and what. Yeah. If you look if you look closely at that scene when they're bobbing their heads, especially Dana Carvey and Mike Myers who are sitting in the front seats. They, they're they not as enthusiastic with their head bobbing as the guys in the back because their necks were hurting so bad from having to bob their Do heads up and, and down again, <laughs> again, and again. Yeah, and uh, Mike Myers was just not happy. They were in so much pain doing this scene. That is funny. So, so rock and roll, you got to be careful. you got to pace yourself when right. you're doing your head bob. And a a little bit of sad news in that Freddie Mercury did not live to see this movie and what it it did to his amazing song. But I did read that he did see this head-bobbing scene with Bohemian Rhapsody in it, and he approved of it. Yeah. So that is good. And the thing I'm really excited about is... There's a movie coming out. We don't want to talk too much about the movie. We don't really even know what it's going to be rated, but it's called Bohemian Rhapsody. Oh, yeah, I've seen a the previews song for that. that. has that had such an impact that the biopic about Freddie Mercury is called Bohemian Rhapsody. If you look closely, I don't know if he's a, a, a band manager or if he is like a radio DJ or something, but there's a, a heavier set guy with a curly, curly hair, and he says – The song goes on so long, it's six minutes, and it's a person speaking with a British accent by the name of Mike Myers. Oh, is it really? (laughs) Yep. So that is clearly uh, a a tip of the hat to Mike Myers (laughs) and helping them uh, make this song even more famous than it really was because the filmmakers wanted to use a totally different song. Can you imagine that scene with a different song? No. For, say, a uh, Guns N' Roses song? Yeah, you, you'd, you'd get some of the bombast, but not
3: nearly that, right. which is just you know all of the different
6: parts and them mouthing the whole thing. Yeah, it was, I'm not sure which one it was going to be, but it was going to be a Guns N' Roses song, and Mike Myers threatened to quit the movie. Wow over this. He said it's got to be Bohemian Rhapsody and he felt that strongly enough about it. And this is a guy, this is his first movie. Can you imagine the gall of him threatening to walk out over this? Yeah, who are you? But again, this is I I think this is another song a lot of people could agree just makes you want to rock out and like you said have that same reaction as Wayne and Garth bobbing your head and just being in awe of the amazing things happening here because there's so much going on, so much that feels like it's breaking the rules. But that's part of the genius of the song.
3: And then after all, nothing really matters to me. <laughs> By the way,
6: if you want to see another great version of this song, look up Muppets singing oh, Bohemian Rhapsody. If you haven't seen it, yeah. it is pure joy.
3: Of course, uh, Weird Al Yankovic doing the Bohemian polka. That's also a great version of it.
6: Right. <laughs> <laughs> and usually in his polka songs, he does a string of songs to these different polka yeah. themes. But he dedicates his entire, entire song to, to that Queen. One. Love it. Well, Don Shalhoub, we really appreciate you spending some time with us here it's been on a Screen joy. Cleaning. Thank you. This has been a really fun discussion. And again, it goes to show the power not only of music, but the power of movies. What a good, what a great movie can do to elevate a great song that maybe has been forgotten about. Maybe it's decades old and it just needs a new audience. And thank goodness for movies for helping music uh, be discovered anew. That's going to do it for this segment here on Screen Cleaning. When we return, we're going to be speaking with our good friends over at BYU Sports Nation. We'll be right back.
1: If you need Cole,
6: about a year and a half ago, I took a chance on you when we started <laughs> screen cleaning. so I that can was always trust
7: you for a great segue. That That's was for the sure.
6: best I could come up with on short notice. Um, you're obviously playing this music because you mentioned Mamma Mia, Here We Go Again earlier on the program in your segment where we were talking about
7: sequel titles. And this is one of your favorite sequel titles of all time. It is because... So, first of all, the lyrics to the song go, Mamma Mia, here we go again. Exactly. And also, if you want to create a great sequel title, you're going to do it again. You know, they often use 2, T-O-O, or just the number 2. Sure. Um, But saying, Mamma Mia, here we go again, we're doing the movie again. That's right. Honestly, they used a lot of ABBA's songs in the first one, so I'm expecting to hear a lot of them again as well. I think it's a great sequel title.
6: Now, Cole, usually you and I try to review the movies that are coming out over the weekend. Neither you nor I did see this film, but I went and saw a different film last night, and when I came out of the movie theater— Somebody was clearly excited that they had just seen the film and they must have liked it because the windows were rolled down and they were singing at the top of their lungs uh, to uh, Dancing Queen which I believe is one of the songs in the film. And it's doing quite well, uh, critically speaking, because it has a much better rating than the than original. The first one, yeah. So, yeah, it's one of the rare sequels that, that improves on the first one. And I was a little sad that you didn't mention my favorite sequel title, which uh, it's sad because the sequel title – Was the funniest part of this sequel. The movie was quite disappointing, but the title was genius, um, which is a little ironic because it's a dumb movie. It's a dumb movie. It's called Dumb and Dumber 2 spelled
7: T.O. So it's genius in its stupidity. Uh, Yeah. And it's not. And it's also funny because it's not the second one either. There was Dumb and Dumber. -er. But that's not canon. It's well, funny. that's another it funny. Happened. It's funny to say "canon"
6: and "Dumb and Dumber" in the same sentence. Yes, as those well. very
7: serious fans <laughs> of the Dumb and Dumber franchise don't accept Dumb and Dumber. Hey,
6: hey! I am a huge supporter of the original Dumb and Dumber. I think it is again, it's genius in its stupidity. It's it's funny to look at that movie and call it a smart movie, but that's what it is: smart dumb comedy. It is a smart dumb comedy. Um. One thing we didn't mention earlier when we were talking about Comic-Con, and I kind of want to get your opinion on this, Cole, because it seems like lately whenever movie makers or TV makers have tried to swap genders, kind of take the same idea and convert it over to a female cast, the results have not always been that great
7: well, and, and oftentimes certain kinds of fans decide whether or not they're going to like it before they get to Absolutely. see it. Absolutely. And that's I, when when that happened with Ghostbusters
6: and they rebooted the franchise. with That's a female your poster cast, boy for this. Yeah. I was I was furious with all of the hatred that was being spewed at the, this cast of female characters. I pretty much went to go see that movie in spite of all the haters. Now, I didn't really care for the film all that much, but that has to do more with the writing than with the cast. I think the cast was was all fine and good. Yeah. They tried it again with Oceans 8. Not as well received as the original Oceans trilogy, Not well, which also was not the original well, Oceans movie, but it made a lot of money. It's still mm-hmm. in the top ten weeks and weeks and weeks later. So – it's it's interesting because now at Comic-Con, they introduced the newest character, the newest actor to play Doctor Who, and lo and behold, this time, it's a female.
7: Yes, the first trailer for the newest series, not season, of Doctor Who <laughs> was premiered at Comic-Con as well. So we're getting all kinds of new... Stuff it's Jodie Whittaker that is the new female doctor. It's the first time in thirteen iterations of the doctor and that she's
6: a girl. What have we seen her from? Because I've only seen her in, in one thing.
7: What? Well,
6: <laughs> you're looking. <at> IMDb <laughs> will tell us. Jodie Whitaker.
7: Yes, I know she did an episode of Black Mirror. Um, It says Attack on the Block, Venus, Adult Life Skills, A Thousand Kisses Deep, a lot of other things that I've never heard of. So a bunch of British things. Yeah. So
6: maybe this will kind of help introduce her to an American audience because a lot of Americans love Doctor Who,
7: Yeah, especially at Comic-Con. Before Doctor Who, Christopher Eccleston, David Tennant, Matt Smith, these weren't exactly – Peter Capaldi. These weren't exactly well-known American actors either. Um, We get a first look.
6: Well, speaking of Comic-Con, there is one other thing from Comic-Con that we wanted to highlight. And we're going to do that as our panning for good segment.
7: There's good in them
0: there
6: <laughs> So Cole knows that I am a huge fan of The Good Place. I would rank it as my favorite TV show that I've seen this year. But that'll probably be dethroned when Better Call Saul season four comes out. Anyway, there is a character named Janet who is kind of – she's not really a robot. She's not a human. She's kind of this entity in female form, but she's not really a female. She's kind of Alexa as a woman – or uh, no, Alexa as a – well, anyway. The show is about Just watch the show. <laughs> this heavenly place that maybe is not really such a heavenly place, but it really promotes doing good things. And that's what they're doing at Comic-Con with this character.
7: Hi there. I'm Janet, coming to you from Good Place at San Diego Comic-Con. The Internet can be a place of true connection where people from all over the globe engage in a positive dialogue about their shared experiences. It can also be a miserable cesspool filled with garbage
0: people. So to encourage good behavior online, we've partnered with Twitter to create
7: The Good Gauge. The Good Gauge is a way for us to highlight all the good stuff that's going on at Comic-Con. Did you cry with happiness when you got an autograph from your favorite illustrator? Did you switch seats with a mom and her daughter so they could get a better view of the Riverdale cast? Share all your good tweets with us. by using.
6: There you go. Look for the good, even at places like Comic-Con that is filled with garbage people, as Janet says. Um, Anyway, that's going to do it for this episode of Screen Cleaning. We always encourage you to look for the good, and that's what we do on Screen Cleaning. We put a big old spotlight in all that is good in entertainment. We'll be back next week.